Hi. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Drew Schmidt. I am from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Yes. Are you from Nor Northwestern or Orange City? Thank you. I was kind of afraid that nobody would say anything. A couple things you need to know about me. Uh, number one, I am a professor of theater and worship. So there's that. That might explain some of the things that might happen tonight. You'll also have to understand that I have an incredibly dry sense of humor. So if you think something might be a joke, it might be. So if you could give me a courtesy laugh. That'd make me feel very welcome. So thank you. <laughs> I met some of these guys up here through this youth conference that uh, we put on as a church called Rocky Mountain High. Rocky Mountain High? Yes. I'm in charge of all the media for the event, and that's how I met some of uh, these guys. Uh, Carter asked me to come out and speak with you, uh, and that's pretty sweet. And let me, let me say it this way. They're my friends. You're their friends. Therefore, you're my friends. <laughs> so I was eager to say yes to Carter and come out and speak with you. And this is the week that worked. And he asked me to talk about divorce and adultery and oaths. Welcome to basic, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the truth. I couldn't be happier to make the trip out to Eastern Iowa to talk to you about this very thing. These are hard topics, and our God is Lord over them. Amen? I recognize that you might struggle through some of what we discussed tonight, that it might be uncomfortable, and I'm okay with making you uncomfortable. Yes, that was funny. <laughs> so to facilitate that, I'm going to shake things up from the norm this evening. I'm going to do it with a reason and a purpose. For example, I asked these guys to come up and stay up with me throughout the whole time. We've already entered into this place of worship. We're going to stay in this place of worship, one where God reveals himself to us, one where we then get to respond, one where in that conversation, he makes us new. You're transformed to look more like him. That's why you come out on a Thursday night in the cold, to be made new to look more like the Christ that we love. So I'm gonna ask you to start tonight by entering into that place of ready transformation. And it looks like a few things. First, I'm gonna ask you guys to all stand. We're gonna to sing together, but we're going to ready our hearts before we take these lyrics and pray them through music. 
Now that you're standing, I'm going to ask you to take a posture of readiness, of expectations. And there's lots of ways to do this, but we're going to do it really physically. So if you take your hands, put them in front of you. There's a posture of receiving. Receiving his grace tonight. His words tonight. His changing tonight. I see that some of you are already here. But I'm also going to ask you to start by closing your eyes. To get rid of all this stuff that's in front of you. And let him remain. If you're here tonight, I suspect that you're longing to know that spirit. Whether or not you know who he is yet, that doesn't matter. There is an aching inside of your heart to know him, to know his anointing. I suspect that you expect something to happen. That's a holy expectation. One that you expect to meet the God who loves you beyond measure. Hear that? That's space. That space is the still soft voice where the spirit lives. He was here before you walked in. He was here before you woke up this morning. He was here before these walls were built. He was here before there was ground to build them upon. And even then, he knew you and loves you. Christ is calling you tonight to start the conversation that he's already began with a declaration. He says, I love you this much. My prayer for tonight is that this might be our declaration back. I love you too. So let us continue in a posture of surrender. Hear these words from Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In Christ, we get to declare these same things, that the Spirit of the Lord is on me, and the Spirit is on you, anointing us. He calls us to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom, to bring sight to the blind. And if you feel like a captive tonight, you can be set free. Amen? So Jesus, as we come before you, as we approach your throne, as we respond to your deep and unlending love, transform us. We long to be changed and made new. Take our joy and make it new. Take our pain, make it new. Take our aching hearts, our heavy baggage, turn them to freedom. Take everything that we are and we surrender it. May we find life in you tonight. Isaiah. And Isaiah called deeply to things that he knew to be true, that there is pain and celebration in our God. That was true centuries ago when Isaiah wrote them. It was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus repeated them and said, I am God. This is fulfilled today. And they're true 
today. So hear these words from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve at Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Yes. They are called the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor and so instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. into this space tonight, your junk and your crap, lay it down at his feet because we are in his throne room right now, amen? So lay these things at his feet, whether that's classwork that you left in your dorm room, whether that's worries about what's happening tomorrow with your friends, whether it's struggles with roommates, whether it's depression, whether it's thoughts about suicide, whether it's worry about your family at home, whatever it is that is aching your heart, nothing is too big for the God on whom we can build our lives, the one who loves us more than anything. Nothing is too great for that God, amen?
you still know us by name love us and we're waiting for us to come to you tonight so with a holy expectation we all together say amen you guys can have a seat this is what we're doing tonight and you guys are fun <laughs> If you have your Bibles or got one, you can open it up to Matthew 5. I know you guys have been working, well, we'll be continuing to work through these passages. And I can see why and where a passage like this one, words like these, uh, become and feel like strict rules. They feel stifling, constricting. If you feel that way, you're not off base, you're not alone. The truth is though that they're rich, yeah? But you feel this way and these exist because of something that's hard. This world isn't the way that it's made to be. We broke it. So these words are a way to say this is a way to live life, one that restores creation, one that makes the kingdom of heaven crash down onto earth. I want to talk about two things through these passages tonight. And the first is an overarching theme, and it's this. It's okay to grieve the fact that life isn't the way that it's meant to be. To be alive is to know suffering. If you're here today, I promise you know trauma. That's just part of being alive. Some of us know less trauma than others. Thank you, God, that that's true. But we all find unity, solidarity, in the fact that we know suffering. There's something beautiful about that. So we mourn any time that this life looks anything less than heaven. Creation groans to be redeemed and restored. It's okay, then, for you to groan right alongside the rest of creation. Grieve when this sort of stuff happens, which is why Jesus says from Matthew 5, talks about divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Ugh. Ouch. I don't have a lot of memories from when I was a child. I probably suppressed them too much, and I should probably get that checked out. <laughs> Until then. <laughs> I remember clearly when I was 10 years old, uh, I went to our sixth grade PE showcase night, because that was a thing in my town. 
where we invited all of our parents uh, to our gymnasium and showed them what we were doing in gym class. You know, things like parachute, <laughs> scooters, but don't stick your finger in the middle hole, you might lose it. <laughs> Not that I've ever met a kid who has. <laughs> I had this great idea. We were top of the rung, sixth graders in the elementary school. So I said, we are going to play floor hockey. And everyone was all on board with that. And at the last minute, Mr. Barkey called an audible. Woo! We weren't doing hockey. We were juggling scarves. <laughs> and this tore me apart. And I remember sitting in the very top corner of the bleachers of the gymnasium, sobbing and weeping. And my teacher came to me and she's like, what is wrong? And I couldn't figure out what to say. Deep in my 30s now, I realized that I was crying because my parents had just split up. You can laugh, it's kind of funny. Okay, now. <laughs> Ouch. Right? Fascinating to look back and to see what pain does to us. Especially when you're young, you don't have the capacity to understand, much less express and articulate this pain. All you can do is weep on the top of the bleachers. My parents didn't fight, at least not in front of us. Uh, their problem wasn't volatile communication. Theirs was a lack of communication. So, I remember very clearly the night that my dad left. He was the hospital administrator, and every fall he had to be in charge of the bazaar that happened at the mall. Um, and my mom was a teacher, and so she was working late at school one night, and he had forgotten to tell her that he needed to go to this thing. Again, lack of communication. And this was the days before cell phones, <laughs> so we couldn't just, cool. I guess that's an email, isn't it? Never mind. So he couldn't tell her that we were going to go to the mall to work on this hospital bazaar. So my sister and myself uh, went to the hospital bazaar to work on some stuff. We couldn't find our dog somewhere in the house. So we just left. And we came back later that night to find my mom weeping on the floor. Our dog had been hiding and then had scratched up a bunch of stuff, pooped all over the thing, and she had gotten panicked because she didn't know where we were and my dad wasn't with it enough to leave a note. She had called the hospitals, the police, everyone that she knew, and she couldn't find us. The truth was, he was slipping into this deep depression. Um, and the truth was, he didn't, she didn't even know if he had taken us and driven off a cliff. She had no idea. She was wrenched with worry. So we were told to go upstairs, and they started yelling at each other. The first time I'd ever heard that. So my sister and I sat on the top of the steps, listening to them fight for the first time in our lives. And all we could do was... The next morning, my dad went to work early, so I didn't see him. And he stayed at work late. Um, 
so I didn't see him. And then he did it the next morning, and the next night, and the next morning, and the next night for about a week. At the end of the week, my mom finally gathered enough gumption to say, your dad's not working. I asked him to leave. We're getting a divorce. And that was the end of the conversation. At the beginning, my parents were far too depressed to pay attention to my sister and myself. And once they got their heads above water, there was no perfect or apparent time to bring it back up. So, for the next four years, no one talked to me about divorce. It was just the way that things were. Except for, I remember one time in church youth group, <sighs> we were spending some time in a circle saying encouraging words to one another. And my youth leader looked at me and said, I'm so impressed by how you've handled your parents' situation. If you were paying attention at all, I had slipped into that same deep depression. I was drowning, deeply saddened. You know, type like sitting in the dark, listening to Pearl Jam and Nirvana while watching a lava lamp. <laughs> it's funny. I also ate a lot of Tostitos at that time. I was absent from all photos, and if I was in a photo, I was probably in the back wearing my black David Copperfield shirt. <laughs> because no one was there for me, not even the church who should have been. I could tell you stories about God's clear and present work in my life. I could tell you about hearing his audible voice telling me to go work at the college that I'm working at. I could tell you stories about my wife's kidneys being healed from a mysterious disease. I could tell you about the time I felt physically paralyzed by the spirit. I could not move until I agreed to stand up and chase after a friend and weep in his arms. I could tell you about the time where I was speaking in tongues on top of the mountain with people that you know in this very room. <laughs> Sup with it. <laughs> but these stories are not why I know and love Christ. They're just affirmations of his greatness and his glory. The reason I know Christ is a much simpler story. So I went to church as a kid. Uh, it didn't mean anything. <laughs> I listened, but I didn't hear. Anybody relate to that? Yeah. My youth group was going on a mission trip. This was high school now um, to New York City. And a girl I liked was going, so I followed. <laughs> it did not go well. <laughs> But at the night time, a friend of mine that went along stopped me. And she said, how are you doing? 
don't know if I've ever actually been asked that before in a way that expects me to actually answer that. She said, how are you doing with your parents' divorce? How are you doing with that guy, Doug, that's hanging around your house all the time? Now you're wondering whether or not his name is actually Doug. <laughs> and I broke. I wept. For three hours into the middle of the night, I said everything that was on my heart that I was never allowed to say. It was raw, it was painful, it was addicting. <laughs> it felt so good. For the first time in my life, I had been allowed to grieve. And what came out of it was healing. I liked it so much, we did it again night two. We did it again night three, which was the 4th of July, and we watched fireworks over Staten Island. It was beautiful, I'll never forget it. But that healing of the soul was breathtaking. The healing of my heart, the freedom to be in pain changed everything. All of a sudden, all these things that I heard in church, I heard now. The God that they had been talking about, ah, everything makes sense. Now, so I found a new life, I found peace, I found joy. Now mind you, that wasn't immediate. Sure, I switched out of my David Copperfield shirt <laughs> and started wearing yellow. <laughs> I could laugh and be happy. There are pictures of me now. I did my senior pictures inside of a shopping cart that I stole from the grocery store. <laughs> That's who I am because I am a new person in Christ. Well, maybe not the stealing the shopping cart. I returned it, by the way. <laughs> but this, somebody allowing me to grieve and finding Christ in her, that's what changed my life. And to be fair, we, I, we, have a choice. I like to say it this way. To become bitter or better. And let's be honest. It's not a simple choice. To complain and ache and bemoan my parents who trashed my life, I would be fair to be bitter about that. Our God calls us to become better. Yes? It's complicated. Going back to Matthew 5, Jesus' words on adultery. Warning. These are harder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, 
Cut it off, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Ouch. That's even harder. What do we do with that? A few years later, uh, another friend pressed me on how I felt about Doug, <laughs> who is now her boyfriend. Why? I pressed. You need to know something, Drew. Your mom and he have been cheating on each other. Well, my mom has been divorced, but she was, he was cheating on his wife with her for about four years now. I asked my other friend, and he said, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> the whole town knew it. Well, except me. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I'd been lied to for years. I was the only one in the dark. So on confrontation of my mom, she wept and wept and wept. There was never a good time to tell you, she said. And there was an important thing that happened here. By all means, I had the high road. Yeah? I was the one who could say, how could you do this to me? By all means, I had the right to throw the first stone. Really, read the Old Testament. I was allowed. <laughs> but what I saw in her was pain, the same pain that I had felt. We were suffering together. Why then should I show her anything but the love that he had showed me? There I found forgiveness, not a trite forgetting, but a true Forgiveness that infuses the bones. I was free to say, you'll only find grace here. Oh. Deep into my 30s, halfway through my 30s, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> things with my mother, father, stepdad now, have continued to deteriorate at best. My family, my wife, my kids have been uninvited from Thanksgiving and Christmas celebrations because my kids are an inconvenience to my crazy grandma. She had a leg amputated. My kids call her grandma robot foot. <laughs> And any confrontation that says, this isn't the way that it's meant to be. We should be with you right now. We should see you because you live right next to us. We should see you more than three hours a year. That doesn't make any sense. But calling you to something better makes you feel awkward, so you pull away. And now my kids are old enough to say, why doesn't grandma want us at Christmas? Even my eight-year-old knows that this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. So let's back up and look at these passages. 
that feel like constricting rules. Why did Jesus tell us that these things are true? Why did he say that this is the way to live? Because this one decision that my mom made and my dad made has catastrophic effects on generations. Their actions don't live inside of a vacuum. Your choices ripple. Yeah? That's our sin nature, missing the way that it's meant to be. It took me a while to realize what I was missing. I remember being invited to a friend's house to eat dinner with his family before a basketball practice. I was really bad at basketball, by the way. And the dinner with the family around the table was so normal. It's when I started really understanding that there was something to be grieved, something that was lost. It took me even longer to get over being embarrassed, sheepish. If I'm honest, I never thought that my story was even close to dramatic, and I still don't think it is. My wife and I do foster care now, our way of helping restore and redeem families, people, lives. It's the justice of Jesus. Justice Week, Martin Luther King Jr. Day on Monday, yes. Our God loves justice, yes? That's why we do foster care. But I've seen some nasty stuff. Our first placement uh, was put in our town because DHS wanted the kids far away from the town that the kids grew up in because her mother's boyfriend got out of a car and shot a cop in the face. And they were worried about the gang activity. <laughs> Yikes. Or our next placement, um, two of eight kids, and the dad would belong in a bad lifetime movie, things like sexually abusing all the children, nanny cams inside of a teddy bears to share child porn on the internet, and of course he impregnated his 14-year-old daughter. The depths of humanity, the darkest ones. My story of suffering pales in comparison to that. For some reason, we feel the need to compare. It's as though the severity of our experience validates our pain. Looking at these kids coming through my house, I promise you that there will always be pain that is more severe than yours. So then, you feel like you ought to let your brokenness go unchecked and unmended, which is so tragic because that's one of the most beautiful things about Christ, about the Christian faith, that he'll actually walk through that pain with us. And I promise you, it feels like death every time. But on the other side, may not be removal of the problem, but there's healing, there's peace, there's freedom from that pain that it brings over and over and over. That might take a week, a year, or your entire dumb life. I'm sorry. Things aren't the way that it's, they're supposed to be. But our God is not distant. Our God suffered 
right alongside us. He knows how you're feeling this much. And here's the best thing. His suffering unites us just like his love unites us. I get to look at you. You get to look at me. And we get to see our brokenness in one another. I get to look at foster mom and say, I would make the same poor choices you made if I were you. You'll only find grace here. Now I get to share this love and peace so that you can know that love and peace as well. Let's be united in this. We are in this together. I want to be a part of God's justice. I want to be a part of the kingdom crashing down here on earth. One of my favorite writers says, suffering is any time that you feel like you're not in control. Man, that's every day. To be sinful and to be made in the likeness of God is to be in constant battle. You're going to suffer in that battle. And that's okay. There is nothing wrong with you. And that's okay. Our God still knows that you are worth every good thing, that you are worth his love. And that's okay. Because whether or not you know it, you are loved, my dear child. Before we move on to the second piece, and Carter said I could talk for three hours, so it's okay. But the second piece is shorter than the first. I want to give space to pause and reflect and respond to name a very specific type of grief. If you know suffering and you need to talk or pray about it, if that's sexual abuse, anxiety, depression, even simple worry, Begin a conversation with someone in your trust. That's why you join life groups. That's why you come to this space. But tonight, I want to name this thing that gets overlooked too often. You, my friends, who are also products of broken homes. I'm going to do something egregious. Do you know what egregious means? I'm gonna ask you to do something bold and uncomfortable. You might be mad at me for it, but I'm gonna ask you to be brave. If you come from a broken home, whether that's divorce, separations, or even parents who are so miserable all the time that they should have split up, but they stayed together, probably for you. If you're a product of one of those homes, I'm gonna ask you to stand like I'm standing. Stand together in unity. Whew. You ever seen this beginning of Finding Nemo? I can't make it through it without crying because I'm a crier and now I'm crying. 
Because look at this room. You're not alone. And it hurts. And I'm sorry for the shit you had to go through. I'm sorry. If you're sitting next to one of these people, I want to ask you to stand up alongside these friends of yours, to lay hands on them, to hug and to know them. And I want to pray for you. was the one who raised my siblings, you're still good. Even though every weekend my life was jettisoned into a world of uncertainty as I had to stay the weekend with my dad in this crummy apartment, you're still good. give my life to you to be healed to be mended second half. Is it okay if I do a second half? Should I keep going? I've heard word that it's okay for you to do the second Sweet, half. Sweet. Thank you. Okay. I wouldn't call it half, though. You can feel free to continue praying. If you were too shy or scared to stand up when I asked you earlier and you regret it, there's people in the back to pray with you. If you regret it tomorrow, there's still life groups. There's friends people who are for you. So even now, if you want to go to the back, feel free to pray with someone. If you're grieving about this or anything else, don't let that pain fester. Don't do nothing. You can take a seat. Grab your Bibles. 
from Matthew 5, Jesus speaks on oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from evil. There was a time in my life when I had to ask myself, did God cause my parents to divorce so that I would come to know him? It's a fair question. And I'm sure that you've asked that. Did God cause sin so that I would know him? And I'm going to suggest that it's an exercise in missing the point. Hmm. It's entirely the wrong question. Our God loves us with an unending, unrelenting, reckless love. He brings us out of the ashes, lifts us out of death, brings us into life, carves away our sin and our idols, anything that doesn't reflect his image. So what's the right question? How is he, how is he carrying me out of the ashes? Where is he calling me to know him deeper, to love him more? If you're like me, this Oves passage was weird. <laughs> Swearing by a footstool? Okay. <laughs> So let's see if I can get to the heart of this and the other two. I met a girl at a camp <laughs> that I was working at in college. I remember her walking into the room on the first day and thinking, whoa, this girl's beautiful. I better make sure that she knows that I'm not interested. <laughs> we fell in love. <laughs> and when we started talking about marriage, I freaked out a little bit. A lot of it. I can see so much of my parents in myself. One of my biggest sins is that I avoid conflict at all costs. That's why they got divorced. Why get married if I'm just going to make it end in divorce? So I ran to my pastor who helped me walk through so much of my other junk in life and I wept in his office a number of times. This was one of them. And I'll never forget what he said. I swear the spirit spoke through him. He said, stop trying to be unlike your parents and love your wife with all of your heart. And he let that sit. And then he pulled it back a couple of miles. And he said, stop running away from sin Instead, chase after the God who loves you more than anything. I'd missed the point entirely. Instead of promising to do loving things for her, I should just be love. Instead of struggling to do all the right Christian things, we should just love him in return. Jesus' disciples asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He's saying, seek me first and everything else will fall into place. You know, the psalm passage, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, has nothing to do with the desires of your heart. It has everything to do with delighting yourself in him. We feel this need to swear by something because we need some sort of insurance policy <laughs> to prove some sort of trust, rather than being the type of person who is trustworthy. Will I show my wife that I love her? Of course, because I do love her. Stop trying so hard and simply let my yes be yes, my no be no, my love be love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. Faithfulness is an overflowing of that. And let's be clear, that's really hard. You'll spend the rest of your life trying to get that right. And you'll fail again and again and again. I'm doing marriage counseling with a student of mine and her fiance. And yet, on the same week that she asked me, my wife looked at me and said, are we finally going to talk about this? About what? About how our marriage is splitting up? What? <laughs> you know that we've been flailing and you've become absent and distant. I thought we were just going through a rough patch. No. <laughs> if we let this go unchecked, we could easily spiral into the same place that you're so afraid of going. But in Christ, we leaned in to this. That's what social workers like to say. What happened if I looked at that and said, this is failure? Yeah? What if I ran away because I was afraid of the work that it was to fight for my marriage? And to be clear, Sometimes divorce is the thing to do, yes? And if divorce or adultery happens, let's be clear. A writer that I like to read sometimes, she says, guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am someone bad. I'm going to repeat that. Guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am someone bad. But in the economy of grace, there is no room for shame. It gets shoved out by love. And guilt? <laughs> well, it's just a precursor to transformation, to new life, if you're willing to lean in and do the hard work work. So, my last question is, how do we measure success? When we sent our first foster placement home, they, it was a lateral move. Their home wasn't better than when they first came to us, and people were like, 
do you feel like you did something great for them? I don't know if we really made a difference. And they said, well, you don't know the change you've made in their lives. Mm, they're foreign too. I don't know if they'll remember us. And that hurts a little bit. But on my best days, I remember this. That in Christ, success isn't measured on whether or not I changed lives. Success is measured on this. When I was called, did I say yes? Here's another one, a little bit more poignant. I had a friend who was driving back from Chicago with his wife after a wedding, and his wife was praying and said, um, honey, I think the Holy Spirit is telling us to pay for the meal of a public service official today. <laughs> what? <laughs> So they went to Subway, and they walked into the room, ding, doors open, and there is not a soul in the building. Yes. <laughs> so they go get their meal, they're in the line, ding, and in walks a policewoman. <laughs> so he thinks to himself, okay, 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 she's gonna walk up behind us and she's gonna get her food along with us, I'm going to check out and she'll walk up and I'll ask her if she's going to the bathroom, shoot. So they got their food checked out, sat down, and waited for her to come out of the bathroom, and she comes up, gets her food, comes to the desk, and he gathers the gumption to come up to her and say, I know this is really weird, but I feel like I'm supposed to pay for your meal today. And she says, thank you, but I'm on duty right now, and that would be an ethics violation, so no thank you. Okay. There's no question as to whether or not the Spirit was calling them to do something. Does success look like having paid for the sandwich? Or does success look like saying yes? Does success look like a marriage that lasts forever and ever is, and is all roses and chocolate all the time? Or does it look like being present today, in the big and in the small. Yeah. It looks like seeing my wife when she's in pain, holding her hand, asking her how her day was, and wanting to know the answer. Success in parenting means setting aside my own once, leaving the gym <laughs> to pick up my kids, being present in their lives today, not tomorrow, but today. Success in faith means quite simply knowing the unending love of God and responding to that love and then being that love, the overflowing of his love. This could be a whole other conversation. And I don't think Carter's going to let me go for another three hours. <laughs> but let me give you a taste for it with this quote that I love. I want to leave you with this. Do you know the book, The Little Prince? It's also a movie. The author of that book says this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood. Don't assign them tasks and work, but rather Teach them to long for the immensity 
of the sea. Everything else will fall in line with that. Our God is the brightest light in the sky. All other lights pale in comparison to him. Our God is the one who suffers right alongside us. Our God is peace. Our God is healing. Our God is freedom. Our God is love. If you get nothing else out of tonight, my challenge to you is to long for that with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and respond, to do that and to be that as we sing a prayer together, as we sing of that great love. just the beginning, naming and opening, owning our brokenness. It's the first step. And what comes next, walking through that pain, is hard. It happens tomorrow, and next week, next year, for the rest of our lives. But we have a Holy Spirit to walk through it, it with us. And the people to your left, to your right. And it's hard. But in Christ, we're called to live a life that's better than easy. And through that journey, we find a peace that passes understanding. So I can't wait until tomorrow. It's worth it every time. So, Lord, bless us, keep us, and hold us. Send your spirit to make us new, to take these ashes, and in return, give us a crown of peace, freedom, and love. Something that only God's people said.